Matthew 16, and we're going to be covering verses 13 through 20 this morning. When I was about 13, I remember that I could not wait to have the wheel in my hand, the wind in my hair, the music on my station, and the power to go places on my own. My grandfather had been kind enough to reward me with an old pickup in exchange for painting a portion of his house. And so at 15, I would regularly wash and wax what would become my glorious chariot. I was ready to drive. I'll never forget passing my driver's test and soon thereafter, my mother cautiously handing me the keys. I'm sure you remember getting your license as well and being given the keys. I'm also sure that, like me, many of you remember quickly learning that driving was not only a privilege, but also a great responsibility. You had to carry insurance, perform routine maintenance, and pay for gas. Not to mention the, the need to keep yourself and your passengers safe. I remember learning that if I might quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man here, the, the Tobey Maguire one, with great power comes great responsibility. That's sort of what, what Jesus is saying to Peter and the disciples here when he promises to build his church and give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, you're going to be given a great power. You're very privileged, and with this great power and privilege come responsibility. And so my goal this morning is to persuade you that the main idea of this text is that Jesus is building his church with his people. And exhort you, and this application might not be clear right away, but exhort you to use the keys. We're going to work through the text in three parts by asking three questions. What are the keys? Who has the keys? And how do we use the keys? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would make your voice loud and the noises inside of our minds quiet. Remove distraction. Help us to yield to your instruction. To be made more into your likeness. To understand more deeply what it means to be your church. Amen. Verse 13. <clears throat> now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, And blessed are you, Simon, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's start by asking a simple question. What does a key do exactly? And, and a key in the New Testament does a lot of the same things that it does today. 
gives you access to a place that you would otherwise not have access to. It gives you the authority to open a door. It gives entrance into a place or a realm. And the keys that Jesus gives to Peter and the disciples grant access to the church that Jesus speaks of building in verse 18. You see, he says, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, Peter, I'm going to give you keys to it. He's just sticking with the metaphor. I say Peter and the disciples receive the keys, which I'll explain later. But for now, just grant me that premise. I think the point of the, the metaphor is to show us that the person that has the keys has an authority. I mean, that makes sense, right? You have the keys to your home. You're the sovereign authority over your house. No one comes in and out unless you want them to. Hopefully, that is. I mean, some of you even have trespass signs. No trespassing. We've got guns. Now, if you can read the sign, you're, you're in my sights. You lock the doors to those you don't want in. And to, to people that you kind of like, you, you'll open the door to. Jesus is giving authority to Peter and the disciples here, but we must ask, what is that authority? What are these keys that open the doors to the house of God? Simply, it's the gospel. See, the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he died for my sins and rose again victorious over death as the firstfruits of the new creation so that those who trust in him by faith can also be made new. That's the confession. This is why Jesus says, will, it's future here, give you the keys. See, Peter's confession of Jesus' person is right, but it's incomplete. He's all in on Jesus. I'm following you, Jesus. Believes Jesus is God and that he's the deliverer of Israel. And and he's right, but not in the way he thinks. If you remember when we went through this text in Mark, it's a little bit different, but despite the fact that he and the others had been with Jesus Like the rest of the Jews, they're expecting a political, conquering Messiah king. Expect something military to go on. They they expect him to overthrow Rome. That's why Jesus says in verse 20, you're right about me, but don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Because he knows they have in their minds that the Messiah will conquer Rome. Not that the Messiah will be conquered by Rome. See, Jesus will build his church, but first he must be torn apart himself. Which is made evident right after he tells them not to tell anybody in verses 21 and 23, he predicts his death. And then Peter says, no, you don't, you don't have to die. You're the Messiah conquering king. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have on your mind not the things of God, but the things of man. Peter's made a confession, but he misunderstands Jesus' mission, which is to die. Peter was trying to stand between Jesus and his crucifixion. Jesus would not allow it. Then after that rebuke of Peter, he says to those disciples to whom he wants to give the the kingdom keys, he says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the keys of the kingdom are only given to those that lose their lives and come after Jesus, that understand and experience the power of the gospel. I mean, these guys are not expecting Jesus to die. Even though he's telling them right to their faces pretty plainly, I'm going to die for your sins, and then I'm going to rise from the grave. They still miss it. 
they don't understand because they want him to, to fit into their, what we've called a, a messianic mold. They have this idea about who Jesus is. They think Jesus is the Messiah. He comes to overthrow Rome. The Messiah overthrows Rome. That's what he does. And so if Jesus doesn't overthrow Rome, then he can't be the Messiah. Because of this thought process, many Jews missed Jesus as Messiah and continue to miss him because of their own preconceived expectations and notions of what the Messiah must be. I mean, we do the same thing today. We expect Jesus to fit into our mold. He, he's supposed to be a certain way or, or meet our expectations. And if he doesn't, well, then we dismiss him. Or we say something like, he couldn't have meant that when he said that. Peter and the others, they didn't understand completely, and, and I think it might have been pretty hard for them to follow Jesus to the cross. They're expecting him to, to be a conquering hero, and he's going to die I'm sure they had an interesting mixture of doubt and trust as they saw him hanging there. But, but their faith wasn't misplaced. I think sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus, especially when it's not really clear uh, what the plan is for us. Especially when it leads to being ridiculed like him. I think we often battle doubts as we follow him. But I want to assure you, your faith is not misplaced working for our good. I'm sure that those that Jesus had loved and helped as they looked up at him on the cross helpless, they, they must have thought, my God, how could anything good come from this? This is, this is terrible. The Messiah was supposed to conquer Rome, not to die, not like this. They had no idea that in reality they were witnessing the greatest event in all of history. I think we often have a, a hard time understanding why something happens or, or why it doesn't happen. But the truth of the matter is that no matter how terrible and evil something seems, God is using it for His glory and for our good. It's mercy to us. It's in the hard places of life. It's in our weakness that we find Christ most glorious. And even though our faith might waffle, Jesus is unwavering. I think this is one of the many reasons I'm glad that it's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of our faith. You've heard me illustrate many times that if I fall off of a cliff and I grab a hold of a poor excuse of a root with less faith than a grain of sand and it holds me up, it doesn't hold me up as the result of my belief that it can hold me up. It holds me up as the result of its strength. Remember, it's not the amount of faith that saves, but the power of the object that one has faith in. The faith of the disciples here is not misplaced. They might misunderstand the mission. They might not have the full picture, but they're following the right person. And that small and floundering amount of faith brought them life abundant. And it would bring them power over death. It would bring them the keys to the kingdom. Notice, too, I think verse 18 here is really interesting. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word for, for hell here is actually Hades, which is the Greek word, and it corresponds to a, a more Jewish word, Sheol, all of which they, they point us to this realm of the dead. It's this hopeless place you go to after you die in Jewish thought. Jesus is saying, I, I build my church 
in the gates of the realms of the dead. The realm of the dead is not going to prevail. I will prevail. But here's what's ironic. He builds his church by doing what he tells his followers they must do, which is dying. Jesus builds his church through his death. He absorbs the wrath of God, dies for our sins, enters the realm of the dead, and then he blows the gates off of hell. He opens it up. Those gates will not prevail against those that have faith in him. He returns to life. Jesus' death and resurrection mean that those united to him by faith can no longer be held by death. The gates of death cannot restrain the saints. Those Christ has set his love on, that have followed him by faith, do not die. Christian, you do not die. I said it before, death is merely a portal through which we step into the realm of eternity. At your funeral, I can stand up. If you know Jesus, I can stand up and say, Jane Doe, John Smith is not dead. The gates of death have failed. They could not hold him. He is with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He will return with Jesus. And like Jesus, be reunited with a new body. The new heavens and the new earth. That's victory. The gospel brings life. It opens up the doorway to heaven. And it is the key. See, belief in the gospel outfits the confessor of the gospel with the authority of the gospel. This means the person who has Jesus revealed to them by the Father has also become entrusted with the kingdom keys. Which leads us to our next question. Who who has these keys? Verse 15 again, Jesus asks them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus, I'm going to paraphrase here. He asks, that's what, they, that's what everybody else says I am. That's who they say I am. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, yes, finally, you get it. That's who I am. After all this time, after constantly not being able to figure it out, you understand who I am. You know what, Peter? There's no way you got this on your own. God must have showed this to you. Peter, I'm so proud of you. You know what, man? I'm so proud that you finally figured this out. I'm, I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. And Rocky, you look a lot like the foundation of the church. You look like a Christian. In fact, you're going to be instrumental in the foundation of my church. You are the first to confess my identity, and you will be the first to wield the kingdom keys. Upon my resurrection, you will be one of the first to preach the gospel and open up the doorway to life. Jesus recognizes Peter's role as a spokesperson, recognizes him as a leader among the disciples. And Peter is, he's instrumental in establishing the church. He uses the gospel keys to unlock the door to the the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2. 
does it again for the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and finally does so for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Now, it's because of our Catholic friends, uh, they've wrongly understood this passage. This is where they, they get the idea of the Pope. And they, they, they say there's a secession between apostles. We don't see that borne out in Scripture. And so oftentimes, as a response to that wrong thinking, evangelicals swing the pendulum the other way and we go, well, Peter wasn't important at all. It's actually that Peter in his role as confessor is instrumental in establishing the church. He's not a pope. He just gets the gospel. And soon the rest of the apostles will get the gospel. That's why Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation that's laid by Christ and the apostles and that Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Jesus doesn't build his church on Peter. Builds his church on himself. And he uses his disciples to proclaim the message. The statement doesn't mean that Peter enjoys a greater authority or that he is infallible or that he is sinless. There's evidence of this in Galatians, right? Paul has to correct Peter for eating with Jews and excluding the Gentiles. He's corrected of sin and then uh, he only has one voice at the Jerusalem Council wherein James has the defi- decisive final word. Because Peter, like us, can only open the door of heaven insofar as he faithfully preaches the gospel and recognizes true confessions of the gospel. Only the gospel can open the door to heaven. So if somebody uh, came to Peter, and we always love the pearly gates illustration for some reason, I don't know why, but if Peter's at the pearly gates and, he sa- and somebody comes and they say, Peter, we went in, we went into heaven, and he says, all right, do you have the keys? Do you have the right confession? And they say, um, Allah is God. Peter can't let them in. That's the wrong key. Doesn't fit the lock. Only a right confession, a right understanding of Jesus can open the door to heaven. The only way into fellowship with God is to turn from your sin and from your way of doing life towards God's way of doing life. The only way into fellowship with God is to admit that you are a sinner in need of saving. The only way into fellowship with God is to believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, resurrected from the grave, and lives now as the first fruit of new creation. True peace, true happiness, true fulfillment Those things are only found in fellowship with the God that created you. It's what he created you for. And your sin keeps you from that. To get to God, we must renounce all of our sin. Stop trusting in these good things that we've done. Stop trusting in all these other silly, worthless trinkets that we look to to give us meaning or value. We must receive the grace of God with open hands poor in spirit, saying, I have nothing to offer. You alone, Christ, can give me meaning and value. The gospel message is the keys. It's the authority to open up God's house for broken and weary sinners to enter in and rest. Keys of the kingdom belong to all that have been adopted into God's household. When you, when you genuinely believe the gospel, when the church says, yes, new believer You're walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. Therefore, new believer, you have fellowship with us. You're our brother. You're our sister. You're part of the church. You kind of get keys to the house, right? Part of the family. It's 
what the, the church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to affirm and give shape to each other's Christianity. It's the key. How you hear and respond to the person of Jesus will define who you are ultimately. In verses 13 and 14. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. This, this question, who is Jesus, is answered wrongly by the people. They come up with all these different explanations. Some, he's reincarnated John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he, he's a good prophet, he, he's a really good dude, he's a good teacher. All of these answers are wrong. I mean, to this group, Jesus is just another guy, and his teaching is just another teaching. This, I get the idea of uh, those that categorize Jesus along with other religious leaders, have a, a coexist bumper sticker on their car. They don't honor Jesus as God and King. Jesus will not coexist with other so-called gods. He stands alone. He doesn't share His glory with another. He demands our worship. All of it. So to reject God, to reject Jesus as King, is to reject the keys. It's to be locked out of the house of God. It's to be locked out of fellowship with the Father. And I think like Peter, all of us, apart from an act of God, would reject Him. Do reject Him. And do you know what an amazing privilege it is to know the God of the universe? All of us, at one time, hated God. Hated Him. We were His enemies, Romans tells us. And it was then that He died for us so that we might have fellowship with Him. I mean, we would have happily strolled down the road, the pathway to hell, singing to ourselves, Highway to hell. Happily, joyfully. But Jesus stepped in. He interrupted us. He reminded us. He showed us. Hell is awful. It's a separation from Him. It's a place that songs end with broken chords and, and weeping. God, God arrests us before we can speed off this unseen cliff into the valley of death. That's why in verse 17, Jesus tells Peter, you couldn't have understood this on your own. You were God's enemy. Your heart would be too hard. You're not smart enough to get this. It had to have come from God. The same is true of us, friends. No one follows Jesus without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible describes us as dead apart from a saving relationship with Christ. And dead people, as far as I know, they don't just decide to live again, right? They're dead. They don't do anything. In the Bible, we are like a corpse swollen and decomposing on the bottom of the ocean. And then God the Holy Spirit comes to us and plucks us from the ocean, places us on the beach of His mercy and breathes life into our lungs. He heals us, makes us new. It's like, in thinking of this, Christians are a little bit like zombies, right? We're, we are the undead. 
difference is we look a little better than zombies now, I hope, and definitely later on when we get new resurrection bodies. Live forever. The point is that God must do the work. Only He can give life. Only God can change your heart. Biblical word from this, and maybe you've heard it before, is regeneration. Which means that God imparts new spiritual life to His people. Others have called it being born again. It's probably language you're more familiar with. And just as you didn't choose to be born, nor can you by your own self-effort force yourself to be born again. Which, this shouldn't be cause for concern or for worry. If you have the slightest desire for God, that's evidence that He's already begun to work in your heart and soften you. The Bible tells us, ask and we shall receive. Simply ask Him to reveal more of Himself to you, to make you His own. Spirit works this out in us. He changes our hearts. I love what Titus writes in chapter 3, 5, and 6. He says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That should be so sweet to you. He changed you. God rescues us according to his mercy, not because we're worthy. Love in Acts, uh, I think it's chapter 4, uh, Peter and the, the guys have been telling everybody about Jesus, and the local officials go, man, this has to be a work from God, because these are uneducated guys. They're uneducated. There's nothing special about them, but it's clear that they've been with Jesus. Man, I would... I hope that that is what our friends and those that we interact with in culture say about us. I don't know that they're super smart or super special, but it's clear that they have been with God. I mean, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that God in His grace has saved the Christian. has rescued him from his brokenness. Non-Christian is, is the regenerating work of of the Holy Spirit softening your heart right now. I encourage you to, to be born again, to turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Yield to the Spirit's work. Ask God to reveal the truth about Jesus to you as he did to Peter. And Christian, I ask you, when was the last time that you delighted in the grace of God given to you? When was the last time you really enjoyed Jesus? That's what it's about. Not about giving half answers when someone holding you accountable for reading your Bible during the week asks you, did you read your Bible this week? And you say, yeah, every day I read my Bible. The truth is every day you read your Bible, but you didn't experience God there. It was cold. Your prayers felt lifeless. Give them the fuller answer. I did. Pray for me, though. I need to experience God. I want to love Him more than movies. I want to love Him more than my comfort. I want to enjoy Jesus. My heart is whorish. It longs for other things. Brother, help me. Spur me on towards Christ. 
Friends, how we answer the question about who Jesus is will define who we are. We must ask, are we going to answer the question about Jesus' person like the people or like Peter? Who do you say that Jesus is? Indeed, it's the highest privilege to be adopted by the God of the universe. Make you feel a little bit like Annie being adopted by Daddy Warbucks. All these riches are now yours. The grace given to us despite our unworthiness is inexplicably great. It's beautiful. Knowing God is a privilege, but it's not a privilege without responsibility. If the gospel message is the keys, that is the authority to open up God's house for broken and weary sinners to enter in and rest, then the keys of the kingdom belong to all who are adopted into the household of God, which means we, like Peter and the other disciples and other Christians, have the keys. Since we, the church, have the keys, we need to ask, how should we use these? How how do we use the keys? What does this mean? Verse 19, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we see two purposes for these authoritative gospel keys, binding and loosing. If you're like me, it's not apparently clear what binding and loosing are. At first blush, they're not words we use a whole lot, but think when someone is bound, they're being held captive, tied up, a prisoner. And if somebody is loosed, they're freed. Think of a former prisoner set free from shackles. So the binding and loosing language is employed to speak about how, how somebody responds to their sin in the message of Jesus. The keys, the gospel proclamation, is used to set free or loose those bound by their sins and to make clear who is and who is not a member of God's household. So the authoritative gospel keys are given to the church so that they might proclaim Jesus and protect the name of Jesus. To, to use the metaphor, uh, the keys unlock the house of God for those that by faith believe in Jesus and are adopted into the family of God. And the keys lock the house of God to those that refuse to repent of their sin and follow Jesus. The binding or the door locking done by the church is related to its protection of God's household. It's aimed at preserving the purity of God's people the honor of his name. See, it's it's the church's responsibility to affirm or deny someone's inclusion in the communion of the saints. If somebody says to you, I'm a Christian, but I follow, I don't know, Oprah. I I like what she has to say more than Jesus, so she's the authority in my life. You've got to say, brother, you're not a Christian. Somebody says, "I'm, I'm a Christian, but... I don't trust God unless he gives me enough money, enough comfort. They're not a Christian. Somebody says, I'm a Christian, but really, I think Buddhism is what gives me peace in life. They're not a Christian. It's the church's job to say, friends, you're not a Christian. You're not one of us. God's children honor him above all else. Protecting God's name. Someone claims to have believed in Jesus but denies this claim by their refusal, typically it looks more like this, their refusal to repent of sin. Then the church, as the bearer of the keys, is charged with locking them out of the house, or maybe you're more familiar with the word excommunicating them. Take communion together to identify ourselves as a family eating around the table of God. 
we do when we excommunicate someone, you don't eat at our table anymore. You're not a Christian. You're not part of the family. Your confession, the key, isn't right. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. See the church using this authority of the keys in in this particular way, the door locking, to protect the purity of the church in Matthew 18, which is where we're going to be next week because that's a lot more to talk about. And so for right now, we're going to simply focus on the front part of that. We said two purposes, proclaiming the name of Jesus and protecting the name of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about using the keys to proclaim Jesus. As we said earlier, Jesus tells tells Peter and the guys, hey, shut up. Don't tell anybody about the Messiah because they don't understand who he is fully. If it gets out that he's the Messiah, people are going to think conquering military king. They're going to try to crown him before he goes to the cross. So Jesus says, don't do that. I need to go to the cross. And then when he resurrects, we see another authoritative statement at the end of Matthew's gospel, which should be tied to this one. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says, if I can paraphrase, I have all authority and I'm telling you to use the authority that I've given you now that you have the full gospel message and you understand I had to live and die for your sins so that you could be with God in heaven, which is a bigger, larger freedom than you would have ever had if I would have just conquered Rome. Now that I've given you full freedom, full understanding and revelation of what my mission was, and now that that mission has been accomplished, that is salvation from sins, now y'all go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, Rocky, you and the others have rightly understood, now go and tell everyone. Jesus tells them, go preach the gospel, lock and unlock doors, bind and loose. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Keys unlock the doors to God's house to those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those that are being saved is the power of God. Those that don't believe the gospel refuse the keys find themselves locked out. The binding and loosing the church does is ultimately reflective of what the gospel has already done in accord with God's purposes, which is, I think is well illustrated in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads out the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, fragrance from death to death. To the other, fragrance from life to life. So to those that turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, the gospel smells wonderful, like a Yankee candle. To those that refuse Jesus, this message, this gospel smells awful, like a decomposing skunk on the highway. It's terrible. The grace of God, the privilege of calling him Father, is not to be taken for granted or enjoyed half-heartedly, but delighted in fully. Nor is the responsibility of using the gospel keys to proclaim Jesus and to protect his people to be taken lightly. 
Knowing Jesus is an infinite privilege. And it comes with serious responsibility. Use that Spider-Man quote to remember this, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Hopefully that's a good mnemonic device for you down the road. Help you remember that your responsibility as the church together is to do the work of God. Let's quickly review the answers to our question. What are the keys? Simply right understanding of Jesus, the gospel. Who has the keys? All who believe the gospel. How do we use the keys? Well, we use them to bind and to loose, to affirm believers in their salvation and non-believers in their condemnation. One big implication of having the privilege of the keys and the responsibility of the keys is that we must use them. If we don't use the keys, if we don't proclaim the gospel to one another and to others faithfully, we're not deliberate about who we affirm as a member of the household of God, then we're failing in our responsibility. We've been entrusted with a great task. We're going to be held accountable. The Lord Jesus is going to ask you, what did you do with the keys? Sisters, brothers, what will you do with the keys? I'm sure many of you have stayed at a hotel before. Uh, My sister used to work at the Hampton. One of the things that Hampton does is they make you warm chocolate chip cookies from time to time. And so wherever I check into one, I snatch a chocolate chip cookie and I usually eat it like as I'm talking to the receptionist. I check in and usually behind the desk they have a box full of cards. And they get the cards out, you, you give them the confirmation of your room number that you're staying there, and then they, they swipe the key through that magic box that makes it work. I don't, I'm not sure how that works, magnets or something. And then they give it to you and you can get in and out. I mean, I think we're supposed to be like the person behind the desk in terms of this first aspect of being the bearer of the keys. Got a bunch of keys to pass out so that people can have access to the only one that can give them rest and satisfy their hunger. I think notice too, all of us are responsible for the use of the keys. See here in Jesus' words in Matthew 18 and elsewhere throughout the New Testament that we're responsible sometimes when church members disagree or argue in an unchristlike fashion we are all sinners after all there's a charge that's often levied i've heard it many times when somebody gets mad at somebody else say well you're trying to to run the church might struck me as an odd comment but one that could be hurtful i think ultimately i think the truth is that yes all of us together in submission to the lordship of jesus christ should be trying to run the church. We're responsible for it. Yes, yes, elders have a special role to play in the governing of the church, and we'll talk about that in the fall. But all of us, all of you together, are accountable to God for this church's faithfulness, if you are a member here. If you're a member or one day are becoming a member, uh, you're going to be responsible. Friends, by, by joining this church you become jointly responsible for whether or not this local expression of the body of Christ continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. You're jointly jointly responsible both for what the church teaches as well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. This means that one day you're going to stand before God 
and give an account for how you used this authority. Will you be careful and prayerful with the authority he's given to you? Will you do the hard and rewarding work of building relationships with one another and making disciples? Or will you stand back and remain anonymous? What will you do with the keys? I pray that we use them in obedience to Jesus as he uses us to build his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege of knowing you and of being able to call you Father. The privilege of being able to ask the king of the universe in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Thank you that you care about the smallest needs that we have and our greatest concerns. Thank you that you give us what's always for our good, even if we can't see how you're going to work it for our good. Thank you that you meet us in our weakness, that you died for us while we were your enemies, and that you yanked us from the bottom of the ocean to give us life. Father, we thank you for the responsibility that you've entrusted to us to proclaim your name faithfully to the nations, the responsibility we have to protect the purity of your name. Father, we pray that you would help us to delight in you and to protect the name of Christ, to represent you rightly in the community. Lord, we thank you for being so good to us and to blessing us amidst our manifold imperfections with your diverse excellencies. You are so good. Amen.